I hope you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. It's true, when you read the news anymore, you could probably tell which news agency produced the article, probably just by reading the headlines. Republicans prove they're stupid. Democrats are brilliant. Give or take, right? With a word or two here or there. Say, oh, look, it's uh, CNN or Washington Post. Or how about this headline? Democrats prove they're stupid. Republicans are brilliant. Surprise, surprise. Hey, it's Fox News. Rush is always right. Remember that catchphrase from a while back? And they've all gotten pretty good at seeing the same story, seeing the same events happening each day, and then viewing that event through a lens. Uh, potentially through different worldviews. And sadly, also communicating to an audience that they're trying to keep or an audience that they're trying to gain. And that constant tension of the business side of all of that's going on. They have, of course, lives and a reputation to maintain. In church, there's nothing new under the sun. This has been happening since sin entered the world. That's as political as we're going to get today, okay? Now, as we continue in John 11, Jesus has just put out there again for all to see exactly who he is. Uh, This time by raising a man, Lazarus, from the dead. This is the event. This is what took place in reality. And some will see this and believe, and some will see this and reject. And so the news, filtered by the opinions of man, will now spread. So John, 11, chap- John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. You might ask the question, uh, why did they come with just Mary, not Mary and Martha? And some speculate uh, and consider the temperament of the sisters, which one was more popular or whatever. But if you look back up to verse 31, it says... When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So there's your answer. Why does this passage single out Mary? It's just because she was the one the Jews were following out to the gravesite. That's all. That's all there is to it, okay? The more important information in this verse is obviously that many of those Jews who followed Mary out to the tomb saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and they believed. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they began to follow him. Verse 46, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So just like every other time, the truth of Jesus' identity has been put out on display, either through his teaching as one having authority and not as the scribes, or his direct statement before Abraham was, I am, or by his authenticating miracles like healing the blind, raising a dead man. Some heard the voice of their good shepherd and believed, and others rejected him. This has happened over and over in the Gospel of John, and it has happened here again in this instance. And remember, there is no third option these are the options. Neutrality is not an option. Luke eleven twenty three. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, 
and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, as I said, like every other instance so far in the Gospel of John, we have different people hearing, seeing the same message, but with different responses, different headlines. These Jews who went to the Pharisees saw Jesus command a dead man to get up and come out of the tomb, and that dead man stopped being dead. He became very much alive, and he hopped out of that tomb. And they believed, didn't they? They believed the miracle was real. That's what they believed. They believed the miracle was real. They told the Pharisees what Jesus had done, not the stunt that Jesus pulled. They didn't tell the Pharisees the trick that Jesus deceived the people with. They really believed that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And and look at this. Do you see? Do you know why these people didn't tell the Sadducees? Why did they go to the Pharisees? Why the Sadducees? Why not them? And, And here's the deal. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Only the Pharisees believed that that could happen or that that would happen. The Sadducees wouldn't have believed their story. So you know how we know these people really believe Jesus rose from the dead? They went to the Jewish leaders who would believe their story that Lazarus really had risen from the dead. So we know they genuinely believed this miracle took place. Their response to this knowledge, their response to the knowledge to what they had seen, to what they genuinely believed happened, what did they do? They went and told on Jesus. They went and told on him. How can you see this miracle? How can you see all of this rejoicing See people turning to their Messiah in faith and then think, we have a serious problem here. Jerusalem, we have a problem. They should be what? They should be elated. They should be rejoicing. And instead they're thinking, this is not good. This is bad. We'd better go tell the Pharisees. And this is another good reminder for us that believing in miracles is not salvation. Believing that miracles can happen, believing that miracles did happen, is not salvation. Calling Jesus Lord and believing in his substitutionary death on the cross for you, for your sin, that is salvation. And so we have this situation set up. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. There are people who believe. There are people who do not believe. And they go tell the Pharisees. So now, what are the Pharisees going to do? Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. This is the Sanhedrin. Okay, The Sanhedrin is the ruling body in Israel, and they're ruling by permission from Rome. So they could govern in pretty much any way they wanted to. They could do anything but one thing. And listen to this now. They were not permitted to put people to death. Rome would not allow them the power of capital punishment. So the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The Pharisees believe the story. They believe Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Say, hold the phone. What's going on here? First, let him? Did you catch that? 
let him, if we let him go on like this, this is the God of the universe we're talking about here. This is Jesus the Christ, God the Son you're talking about. Colossians 1 says this, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The reason you have the next breath in your lungs, the reason you are alive the next second, the reason you aren't already eternally perishing is because he is letting you go on, Pharisees. And you think you're going to decide whether to let him go on like this? I don't think so. Second, they said everyone will believe in him. It was a bit of an overstatement. All that the Father has given him, all that the Father has given Jesus, will come to him. There are also, though, people who love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus said this in John 3. And therefore they stumble over the stumbling stone that is the crucified Savior, the suffering servant. Not everyone is going to believe. Jesus said this in Luke 16. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So if you think your evangelism is ineffective, if you think your evangelism is ineffective, if it causes you to be slow to share the gospel, Jesus rose a man from the dead and people did not believe in him. Okay? It's not you. Keep sharing. Third, These men have just revealed their hearts, haven't they? What is in their hearts has come out of their mouths. What have we just learned about the hearts of these men? What is it that they wanted more than to be saved by their Savior? And they said this, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Remember this, we do what we do because we want what we want. What did these Pharisees want? What didn't they want to lose? And the men of the Sanhedrin knew that if Rome perceived that they had failed to keep things under control, which is their job, Rome would swoop in, strip the Sanhedrin of its power, pacify the situation, and then Israel, as they knew it, as it existed in that day, might cease to exist. And this happened 40 years later, about in AD 70. By the way, uh, when Rome did destroy Jerusalem and the temple, But in short, these men, these Jewish leaders, had a good thing going. They had a good thing going. They loved the way things were. They were, after all, the heroes of Israel. And they weren't about to let God get in the way of that. So now Jesus is no longer seen by them as a troublesome blasphemer who needs to be stoned. Now he's a threat. He is seen as a threat. A threat to their lives as they knew it. And as they wanted it. These men were less concerned with the truth and with their sin before a holy God than they were concerned with how this Jesus was going to mess with their day. With their social status. With their power. With their comfort. 
they were living their best life. Jesus had to go. And then fourth, when these Pharisees ask, what are we to do? What are we to do? Everybody's going to believe this guy. He keeps doing these miracles. What are we to do? This could have been translated as, what are we accomplishing? As in, what have our efforts to silence this man resulted in? And the answer is, nothing. Right? As if they were powerless to stop him, perhaps? But in asking this question, uh, they may be acknowledging that their strategy up to now is not working the way they wanted it to work, and that perhaps it's time to step it up a notch. But how? And now the chief priest is about to tell him how, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. It seems like a strange salutation until you realize that Caiaphas is believed to have been a Sadducee. So he's saying, you stupid Pharisees, let me tell you how to handle this. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for in the place of the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas had just called for a substitutionary death. That's what Caiaphas is just called for. And it's an either or. Either Jesus dies or the nation as we know it dies. That's what's being presented. And then we have this parenthetical statement of the next, the next two verses. The Apostle John's commentary, if you will, on what Caiaphas just declared. Verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. That's fascinating. I'm pretty sure as things are reading, Caiaphas knew exactly what he wanted to say, but what he said didn't mean what he wanted it to mean, is what's going on here. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas may have had a purpose in his own heart for why he said what he did, but from that human, temporal perspective, he was wrong anyways. Rome did come, didn't they? They did destroy Jerusalem. They did destroy the temple. But God had other plans for the words of Caiaphas. In the Old Testament, the chief priest served as a sort of spokesman for God. And though Caiaphas might have been super proud of his amazing intellect and foresight being used by God and all to foretell the death of Jesus, which he did do, Caiaphas in reality had no idea what the implications were of what he said. And the implications are too great to cover right now. So we're going to punt this to the end of the message, okay? Uh, we're going to cut back to this once we're through the end of this passage. So go ahead, go right to verse 53. So from that day on, after this crisis moment and after this direction from Caiaphas, from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. And what is the one thing the Sanhedrin is not allowed to do? Put people to death. Only Rome had the authority to do that. So we say here, I wonder how they're going to pull this off. And we know the answer to that question. We'll see that as we go further on in this gospel. Verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, 
we are left just to assume how Jesus came to know the Sanhedrin's new plan. He is God. But he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. It's somewhere between 10 to 15 miles away from Jerusalem. And there he stayed with his disciples. And remember this. Jesus didn't go to the town of Ephraim in order to hide from the Sanhedrin. He didn't go there to hide. He wasn't scared of them. They tried to capture him before and failed. It simply wasn't time yet. God was always entirely in control of every event. Jesus would go to the cross when God said so. When it was time. Not when the Jews said so. Verse 55, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to do what? To purify themselves. To purify their sin through sacrifice. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he'll not come to this feast at all? There was a buzz, wasn't there? There was a buzz in Jerusalem. People are talking about Jesus. There's no denying it. People knew about Jesus. They knew what they had done. They'd heard about these miracles and about this teaching. But why would they be asking this question? Why would they be asking whether he was coming to the Passover or not? Seems strange. Of course he would. He's a man. He's Jewish. He's obedient to God. Of course he would be there. Why would they be asking this question? And the answer is right in this next verse, verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the verdict was in and it was made public. And so to add to this buzz of who Jesus is thinking he is and all the miracles that he's doing and the way that he's teaching and the way that he's also now at odds with the Sanhedrin and their desire to put him down. All of this is a buzz in Jerusalem. And Jesus would be there, wouldn't he? This is the final Passover. Like the final, final Passover. The last one that was ever needed. This was the week where Jesus would die, one, for the nation, and two, also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The Passover lamb is about to be slaughtered for our sins. And for all those who believe, it is our purification. Remember, the Jews went to Passover to purify themselves. But for those who sought the death of the Messiah in rejection... They would leave this Passover with blood on their hands. His blood be on us and on our children. The irony of that statement. Now, let me read again. Go back up to verses 51 and 52. And let's spend the rest of our time this morning considering the implications and then the applications from these verses, from these truths. Verse 51 and 52. He... Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, prophesied, thus saith the Lord, right? That, and what was it? Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather 
Jesus would die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, what are some things we can learn from these verses? Things that uh, can strengthen us, we can be strengthened by from this passage, we can be comforted by, we can rejoice because of and grow in our confidence and our assurance. What are some things we can learn here? Number one, we can see in this text that God is exercising his sovereign control over everything. God exercises his sovereign control over everything. If this statement was not spoken of Caiaphas's accord, if this solution is truly prophecy, thus saith the Lord, then whose plan was it for Jesus to die on the cross on this Friday of Passover? Whose plan was it? It was God's. This is God's plan. And it was God's plan all along. God did not take a bad situation and just swoop in and go, whoa, what's going on here? He swoops in, he spins it for the good of Israel and also for our good. That's not how this works. God is not playing chess with people or with the devil from heaven. His will isn't accomplished simply because he is smarter or more clever than anybody else. That's a very low view of God. God is not just a little smarter than us and therefore in control. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. God is continually exercising his sovereign control over everything. So even though the Jews decided to not let Jesus continue his teaching and the miracles and the declaration, who actually planned for and brought about the death of the Son of God? Oh, Let me ask that question again. Who actually planned for and brought about the death of the Son of God? Genesis 3.15. Now how far back does this go? Genesis 3.15. God promised the devil the seed of the woman is going to come. And the devil would bruise his heel. But the promised seed would crush his head. Isaiah 53. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Who? Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Please hear in that passage, what are those wounds healing? Our sin. We are dead in our sins. Dead in our trespasses. His wounds aren't for our healing of a broken ankle. Or for cancer, though we certainly would wish for those things. He healed us in a far better way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. Who? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is is all God's plan 
This is the Lord's doing. Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. What did Jesus say? I am the gate. And the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in her eyes. It's marvelous in her eyes. Jesus is about to die. And this is the Lord's doing. He's planned it. He's willed it. He's doing it. God is exercising his sovereign control over everything. There's a ton of hope in that. The end of this book goes pretty well. And God is sovereignly in control. There's a lot of hope in this. Number two, our faith, our salvation is based on a substitutionary atonement. Don't be scared of those words. It is based on a substitutionary atonement. Okay. Now, it's suggested, it's possible that Caiaphas, in making his prophetic statement, was thinking about the story of Sheba from 2 Samuel 20. You can read that later. I'm not going to read it to you right now. But just to make a long story short, Sheba, who was called a worthless man, a worthless man, decided to try to stir up Israel against David, their king. And when General Joab brought the army to destroy the city where Sheba was, it says a wise old woman talked with Joab, found out what the problem was, and they reached a deal. The the wise woman and Joab, they reached a deal where she would make sure that Sheba's severed head would be tossed over the wall of the city and that Joab would then stop the attack. The whole city was about to go down. Joab was building the siege ramp. And Sheba said, or this wise old woman said, let's, let's work this out. What could we do here? Okay, and sure enough, sure enough, not long after their little talk, Sheba's head was tossed over the wall, and Joab and his army left. Now, Caiaphas may have been thinking about this kind of exchange, certainly thinking of viewing Jesus as a worthless man. But God is thinking of much more, isn't he? Remember this week, Israel is entering into the Passover. And when God judged Egypt in Exodus 12, the Israelites were instructed to slaughter a lamb and place the blood over their doors. And that, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Israel wasn't innocent. They didn't survive that night. Those firstborn did not survive that night because they were innocent. They survived because when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is what this points to. They needed a substitute. And God gave Israel this picture of the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin as a sign of what was to come. Romans 3 Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation. That word means satisfaction. The wrath of God for all of our sin was satisfied, poured out to its full extent on Jesus to where there was no wrath left to execute, no wrath left to give. How? God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God puts Jesus forward in our place to suffer the wrath, the punishment that we deserve. And in so doing, God remains just, having punished our sin. Our sin never goes unpunished. God is just, having punished our sin, and God becomes our justifier in that, through the substitution of Jesus in our place, we have been declared not guilty of sin. So, number one, that's worth an update right there. So, number one, God is exercising his sovereign control over everything. And two, our salvation is based on the substitutionary atonement through the death of Jesus Christ. Number three, this death, this atonement is for Israel and... For the people of God scattered amongst the nations. We have to see these two things in the statement. Israel and the one people of God. And this distinction has caused people to scratch their heads bald over the years. This gets into the discussion of dispensationalism and covenantalism. I'm not going to go into all that. Whether there's a clear-cut distinction between Israel and the church. Has one replaced the other? uh, Or is there a future for both? It gets tricky, okay? It gets tricky, But just to kind of whet your appetite for some further discussion. By the way, come to Sunday school. Come to Sunday school. When we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, yeah, come to Sunday school, okay? And when we get into the church, when we get into Israel, we'll talk about these things there, okay? But Romans 4. In Romans 4, we learn that Abraham was saved by faith, that the righteousness of Christ was imputed to him through faith, and that the children of Abraham are not those who are children in the flesh, but who are children by faith, meaning Christians. You are the children of Abraham. Cool. Romans 9, 6 through 8 says that not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Huh. Galatians 6, 16 refers to the Israel of God as if to imply that there is an Israel that is not of God. Ephesians 2, Paul teaches that Christ has broken down the dividing wall between the Gentiles and Israel and has made us both one, one new man in the place of the two. Revelation 5, verse 9, we get to see Christ, the Lamb of God, being praised for ransoming people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we are told that Jesus has made them, and that's us, by the way, a kingdom and priest to our God. And they, us, shall reign on the earth. Which, these kinds of promises, uh, they might have been assumed to be for Israel, but they're given to us here in this passage as well. You think about that time and that day. Guess what they weren't thinking about back then? America. (laughs) The ends of the earth. Right? We didn't even know that place existed. And yet here we are. And we're in this promise. Romans 11, 25 to 27. 
And in that passage, it's quoting Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27. It refers to the completion of the ingathering of the people of God scattered among the nations, the Gentiles. And it says after that, and then all Israel will be saved. So it looks like after all that God has given to Christ out of the Gentile peoples is brought in, when that which is scattered abroad is gathered in, that the nation of Israel in the last days will turn to Christ. And we see in Scripture that there has always been a remnant of believers out of ethnic Israel, but that the nation as it is then will turn to him at the end. So that in some way, shape, or form, there will be a people, uh, one people who are Israel, the Israel of God, and the people of God who were ransomed from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the amen part right there. Now, as I said before, that stuff can very easily get confusing. If I confused you a little bit in reading those passages, then uh, good. Kind of, right? That's all right. That's all right. Gentiles who are children of Abraham? Israelites who are not Israelites? Two peoples divided, becoming one in Christ, but yet with some sort of future distinction? What? It's tough. It's hard to figure all that out. But don't worry about it. This is the part we have to like check ourselves. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. God's got this, right? And so since God has this all figured out, and we can trust him with it. So let's go back to why this statement is even in the scripture at all. Because God didn't put this passage in John 11 so that we could get all confused and argue with each other about Israel and the church. That's not why that's, I'm pretty sure that's not why that's there. Why is this passage here? And I think it's here to tell us that God has a plan and is sovereignly working that plan for Israel and for the people of God from around the world. You and I are in this passage. God's plan for the redemption of his people included you, it included me from before the beginning, and it always included the death of Christ on the cross for that to happen. This is happening on purpose. This is no accident. This is happening on purpose for your salvation. God is in his sovereign control through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is providing salvation for Israel and for the people from all over the earth. And then number four, this people, the children of God, are through this atonement being gathered. They're being gathered. Uh, What is or has been scattered, as it says in verse 52, is being gathered into one people. And Christ promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the church age, the gathering of all those whom the Father has given to the Son. And what does gather mean? What does gather mean? It means to assemble, to cause to come together. This is the meaning of the Greek word. Uh, one year for Christmas. For Christmas, our boys got a Lego Millennium Falcon. It was huge. And there were more than a few pieces. I looked it up. 1,329 pieces to be exact. Can you imagine if those pieces had been scattered amongst of other Lego pieces for other projects? 
Talk about pulling your hair out. But do you know what I did that night? Nearly all that night. I had to read the instructions, that's for sure. And then piece by piece, by that design, as it was ordered and planned by the maker of that toy, I gathered together all those pieces that were scattered and assembled them into, if I don't say so myself, one sweet-looking Millennium Falcon. (laughs) And then the next morning, the boys played with it. That's another story. (laughs) But do you see what Christ is doing? Do you see what Christ is doing? He is dying to gather. He will build his church. And so in his death, in his death, your salvation was secured. In his death, your life was guaranteed. He died for you. And I don't mean right now Jesus died for you in general, though this passage is also speaking of the nation and the church in general. But in this gathering, in this gathering, this is individual people being gathered in together. Jesus died for you and for you and for you. And I could point to the Christians, right? He died for you on purpose, intentionally, by design, For you, brother, for you, sister, and his death for each and every one of the children of God, for everyone that God has given him, guaranteed your assembling into one people. It guaranteed your salvation. And so now, we're we're just in this time of gathering. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This great commission has already been and is going to continue to be successful. It's guaranteed. Do you know why? Because Jesus died for it. That's why. And so now, in the midst of this crazy world, in the midst of what we might get stressed out about, feel knocked down and discouraged, we might feel like everything's out of control, God's gathering a sheep. There's nothing out of control. God is gathering his sheep. The voice of the good shepherd, the gospel of Jesus Christ is shared, and all of his sheep, whether from the sheepfold that is Israel or from the sheepfold that is the rest of the nations of the world, all of his sheep hear the voice of their shepherd, their savior, their Lord, and they follow him. God is in control. God is in control. You don't have to bite your lip or wring your hands together hoping everything turns out okay. Rest in the fact that God is in control. The Lamb has been slain. Satan, sin, and death are defeated. Christ has risen from the dead. And Christ is gathering his people. Christ has won. Your sins are paid for. In full. Jesus didn't give you a head start at the cross. He suffered and died in your place. So if, when, you sin, don't be defeated. You can't be defeated. Christ has won. God has been faithful and just to forgive you. So take heart. 
Rejoice in your salvation and follow your Lord and Savior. Go walk in a a manner worthy of that gospel. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, still in my flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your sins are paid for. Take heart. And be ready to love people. Be ready to love people. Christ is gathering a people for himself, and they might not all look just like you or just like me. So, church, love what this passage promises. Love what this passage promises, what God is doing. Love the gathering together of the bride of Christ. Love it when it happens here, First Baptist Church. Love it if and when it looks different than you always thought it would. Different than maybe what you want it to look like. Would you agree with me? Church is not a program. Church is not a club. It is people gathered together by the grace of God. There are clubs and programs all over this town, and they need Jesus. And you have him. Something to think about. Something to do. Listen. All heaven rejoices when a sinner comes to repentance. All heaven rejoices when a sinner comes to repentance. We'd better do the same. Joyfully being involved in the work of this gathering and making of disciples. And this will succeed. It's going to succeed if we, First Baptist, if we stay true to this mission, his commission, it will succeed. Christ's death ensured it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing gift that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, there is no way that we could earn this righteousness. There's no way that we could do enough to undo what we've already done and who we already are in our sin. God, if left to our own devices, there is no one who seeks God. There's no one who understands. God, we thank you for the death of Christ. We thank you for your sovereign control. We thank you for your plan. God, we thank you for the privilege of hearing the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel. We thank you for our salvation in Christ. We thank you that our sins, all of them in their entirety and full, have been paid for, that we have been justified by the precious blood of Jesus Christ by faith. God, we thank you that you are the winner. Christ has defeated death and hell. Christ has defeated our enemy. God, may we believe. Help our unbelief. And may we go from here encouraged and strengthened and confident. Not in ourselves. We have no room to think that we're amazing to say something like, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that other man. But to beat our breasts and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then to go out with the charge of the gospel firmly grounded and rooted in who you are, fully confident 
being on the victory side because we are in Christ. God, may we honor you and glorify you in this as we move forward from here. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.